Hi, everyone. I would just like to let you know that the History of Vikings podcast will be attending the annual Jorvik Viking Festival in York, UK, this coming February of 2019. The Jorvik Viking Festival is a historical event like no other. It is put on by the distinguished Jorvik Viking Museum, which takes its guests on a journey back in time to the age of the Vikings in York. The museum prides itself in a truly immersive experience. When you go to the Jorvik Viking Museum, you'll have the option to enter a so-called time capsule, which is basically a ride that drives you through a stunning recreation of Viking Age York. I will, of course, be attending both the Jorvik Viking Festival and their museum, and I hope to see many of you there this coming February. Be sure to check the description below this episode for a link with more information on tickets, dates, and location. Today I'm joined by Rory Naismith, a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and lecturer in medieval British history at King's College London. He has just written a book titled Citadel of the Saxons, The Rise of Early London. His earlier books include Money and Power in Anglo-Saxon England, which in 2013 won the best first book prize of the International Society of Anglo-Saxonists. Rory Naismith, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me, Noah. Pleased to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on. So I guess my first question, uh, we're going to be talking about Viking London today. Now, London is a city throughout world history that is certainly unprecedented when compared to the influence that it has had on world politics and military engagements and really the whole of world history. But when did the Vikings first come to London? Well, that's relatively easy to answer. The first recorded visit of the Vikings to London was in the year 842, according to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, when a force of Vikings um, came into the channel and they attacked various places on both sides of the channel. Um, so they attacked a place called Quentevic, um, which is near Boulogne in northern France, and also London. What sort of powers had been established in London? What sort of kingdoms ruled over the city when the Vikings came? Well, that's a good question. Well, London is, it's actually a sort of frontier city in this period. It's got a number of kingdoms around it, which are all rich, powerful, have an interest in London, have trading connections in London. Um, but it's actually quite on the periphery in terms of these major political powers of the day, which makes it a slightly, slightly special case in a lot of ways. Um, by the, the middle of the ninth century, when the Vikings show up on the scene, the leading power in London has been Mercia. And originally this was a, a Midland kingdom. Mercia means something like the marches, um, as in probably the borders with the Welsh. So their heartland is actually off up in what's now the West Midlands in areas around Tamworth. This is a hundred more miles away from London. Um, but the city in the southeast was the main trading outlet for Mercia. It was its main source of coinage. It was a uh, 
a very unique, very special kind of place where trade had been a big deal for a long, long time already by the middle of the ninth century. So it was very much a trading city where merchants and trade flourished. So I'm guessing that had a lot to do with the you know, sort of economic layout of the city. Can you tell us more about, you know, if perhaps we were to travel back in time and uh, you and I were both seated in a time machine hovering above the city, what sort of interactions and what would the buildings have looked like? What did the city itself sort of look like during the Viking Age? Well, the first thing to stress is that it's, it's a city that in the 840s, when the Vikings first raid London, in a state of transition, in the, the age of the Venerable Bede, for instance, a hundred years earlier, the first half of the eighth century, the heart of London had been what, what scholars now refer to as Lundenwich. And this is an area around what's now Trafalgar Square, Covent Garden, where you have sort of theatres and fancy restaurants nowadays in London, basically. Um, and this was a, a kind of permanent market. It was a big collection of houses, workshops, kind of things that would not have looked terribly impressive to us. We're really talking, in terms of what a modern person would understand, more or less a shanty town, uh, where you've had lots of people engaged in handicraft, traders coming in, traders going out, buying, selling, lots and lots of dealing going on. So that's what the, the earlier part of the city would look like. A um, hundred years later, you had a more straggly kind of setup with lots of clusters of settlements, some in the area of what's now, in fact, the Houses of Parliament, stretching up into St. Paul's Cathedral, which is in the, the western part of the, the Roman city of London. And the story of the ninth century is a gradual shift towards the, the walled Roman city of London, in part probably because they wanted the protection of those walls. And you see new houses springing up, um, and also a few grander buildings too. London, which didn't really have grand buildings, it was just uh, a sort of, you know, place of business, really. Uh, but the city of London, as it evolved in the, the 9th and 10th centuries, got a little bit grander. We know that there was at least one pretty, pretty interesting building, which was made out of wood, somewhere probably close to the, the shore of the Thames, which had several tiers of wooden um, sort of pillars and ornamentation on the inside of it. And the archaeologists who studied this likened it to stave churches that you'd see in Norway nowadays. We don't know if it actually was a church, but it was something on that kind of scale. So you said that for the most part during the Viking Age, the town was controlled by the Kingdom of Mercia. So during that time, uh, could you tell us a little bit about the leadership of the Mercian kingdom? Would there have been, you know, a king, a royal family? How did that look? Well, Mercia is uh, it's a very powerful kingdom, and in part, actually, because it's quite a, a competitive, predatory royal regime. You do, in a sense, have a single royal family in that all the kings claim that they're descended from, um, well, all the kings of the, the 8th and 9th century, at least, claim they're descended from this character called Penda, who was a very warlike king in the years around sort of 620, 30, 40. Um, but whether they actually did have that descent or not is another matter. Um, what's more important for us is that each individual king would have to build up his own power base, not quite from the ground, but he'd lose a lot of the progress that his predecessor had made. And so this meant that each individual king of the Mercians really had to reinvent himself and his regime. So you see different kings doing things quite differently. Um, some of the most powerful kings were a character called Athelbald, who was king between 716 and 757, and he exploited London quite heavily. He issued a lot of exemptions to churches in the southeast of England and in Mercia so that they would not have to pay tolls on trade when they go in. And that's important because, of course, it tells us that he is charging toll to everyone else. And then one of his successors, a character called Offa, 
who ruled between 757 and 796, tried very hard to systematize and regularize Mercian rule. So whereas his predecessors had been quite happy just to be top dog, to be recognized in symbolic and kind of titular terms as the overlord of southern England, Offa really wants to hammer down that these local rulers in Sussex, Kent, places like that, were his subordinates. So he's trying quite hard to reinvent the Mercian supremacy, and London is a big part of that for both these kings as both a a commercial centre and a a symbol of authority that reaches back to Roman times. So as it has been for many, many years, was the, I guess, where was the Mercian leadership centre? What sort of city? Was London the city where they, they ruled from, as you know, the British royalty had for hundreds of years afterwards? Well, actually, not really. They they would come to London periodically. We know, for instance, that that Offa would come and um, he'd attend church councils, which tended to take place around London because it was very well connected. Um, one of Offa's successors, a king called Kernwulf, also came to London a number of times to preside over gatherings of his nobles. But by and large, when the king was actually doing his hunting, shooting and fishing, the kind of things that your average Anglo-Saxon red-blooded warlord would, would want to be doing, they were in the West Midlands. They were a long way away from London. So it's it's a major city of the Mercians, but it's not really the power base of the Mercians. Um, there aren't capital cities as such at this period. Power is really based on where the king happens to be. So you see much more prominence assigned to a whole series of fairly rural places. And these estates that the kings would move around where they would eat the produce from their lands roundabout, where their nobles and bishops would come and attend on them. Um, and everyone was quite used to this system of mobile power. Um, they didn't think in terms of settled cities where kings would spend most of their time. How interesting. Now, when the Vikings did first come to London, for those who aren't familiar, what did that look like? Did they just um, you know, go around raiding and pillaging and then pack up and leave? Or did they assimilate into the culture? And then how did they get on with the Anglo-Saxons who had lived there? Well, uh, in the case of London itself, we we don't know a huge amount about what actually happens in the early stages of these these contacts with the Vikings. Probably not very pretty is the short answer. Um, what the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says about 842, about another Viking visit in 851, is that basically they just come and sort of knock heads and take names. You know, they they pillage, they do what one associates stereotypical Vikings with doing, or at least as far as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle would have us believe. And it may well be that they're um, giving us a, a slightly slanted interpretation. There might be all sorts of other contacts with the Vikings that we don't know about. Later on, um, in the time of Alfred, and especially in the, the years around sort of 1000, 1010, we know quite a bit more about what the Vikings do. And in fact, by the 11th century, there was a, a permanent settlement of Viking mercenaries based somewhere in London. Well, at first they were based in Greenwich, which is um, just southeast of Roman London. And they also had a settlement in the city with a cemetery. They were very influential in terms of choosing the king when the succession rolled around. Very, very important part of the city's life. That's very interesting. Now, sort of a, a broad question just about the Anglo-Saxons in general, which I think is uh, worth discussing when talking about the the Vikings and perhaps some of their greatest adversaries uh, in England anyways. Um, so 
what a lot of people what were some of the you know cultural differences between the anglo-saxons and, and that of the norsemen i mean the lists could go on and on but i guess what were some similarities some notable similarities and what were some notable differences just in the way that they lived in their ideas of religion and their ideas of warfare oh that's a very good question um i suppose that in terms of similarities your average anglo-saxon and your average viking probably wouldn't have looked massively different you know they would have lived in much the same kind of houses eaten much the same kinds of food um they of course used very similar languages too obviously there were differences in terms of you know what styles of brooch they would wear details of how they would manufacture certain things but broadly speaking their lifestyles were not a million miles away from one another um and that made some of the differences that they could pin down all the more glaring. And so religion is is one of these. The Anglo-Saxons were, by the, the time the Vikings first appeared in the years around 800, uh, a Christian people. They'd been Christian for 150 years or more, whereas the Vikings, for the most part, were not. Um, and it was this gulf, this religious break that the Anglo-Saxons tended to focus on. So when you hear about the Vikings being talked about in, for instance, the, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which is a, a series of annals put together in the 890s, they don't ever use the term Vikings as such. They tend to talk about the these guys either as just Danes, which lumps together everyone from all over Scandinavia, or they will talk about them as heathens, um, pagans. So they try quite strongly to emphasize this this paganism, this backwardsness in terms of the religion of their adversaries. Um, so it's an almost sort of proto-crusading ideology that the Anglo-Saxons are cultivating when they fight the, the Vikings. It's, it's not just about um, some bad guys. It's about these you know, genuine threats to their religious state. It's, it's a sort of existential crisis that they're facing. Um, so this is something that various Anglo-Saxons capitalize on. Um, famously, there's a, a homilist, a guy who writes angry sermons called Wolfstan of York. And he wrote in uh, the years around 1009, when there was a particularly dangerous Viking invasion taking place, about how this was all about crisis for the English, that their sins, that their wrongdoing had brought punishment from God in the form of these Vikings. And so he lambasts the English about how they've committed every wrong under the sun, whereas the Vikings themselves are seen more or less as a force of nature. They're, they're not really agents as such. They're just a vessel for God's anger. So I think those are some of the big differences. There, there are other things we could talk about too, like the way they traded and used money. And yeah, there's, there's a, the Anglo-Saxons would probably have fastened on religion as the big one. This is something that Again, is a very basic question, but I feel as though a lot of people are unsure of when the Vikings first came to Anglo-Saxon England, were the Anglo-Saxons aware of their existence? You know, had they traded with them previously or was it very much a shock? You know, who are these pagan Norsemen? They were aware. Yes, they were very much aware. Um, I mean, for instance, the there's this classic text, Beowulf, that most listeners will probably know quite well, um, which was probably first written in England in the pre-Viking period, that is in the probably the 8th or 9th century. And of course, it's all set in Scandinavia. Um, it's all about Danes and Jutes and Swedes and all sorts of people like that, um, Yertus and so forth. So yes, they were very much aware. The the Sutton Who boat burial from the, the early 600s contains various items which are 
closely, um, very close in terms of style to those of contemporary Sweden. Um, there are coins that had probably been made in Denmark in the 8th century that circulated all over the North Sea and, and vice versa, some English coins that went to Denmark. So yes, I think they were very well aware, or at least the elite and traders would have been very well aware of Scandinavia. Um, not so much your average person on the street, of course, but I think that among those who would travel and have closer knowledge of faraway places, Scandinavia was very much on the map. So had the Anglo-Saxons traded with the Scandinavians at this point? They had. And of course, among the the, the kings, the earls, the, the eldermen in England, there would have been um, diplomatic contacts as well. There would have been gift giving, there might have been um, marriages, all kinds of things like that. Um, there were also, um, you know, connections in terms of genealogies, how these kings uh, on both sides of the North Sea trace themselves back to the, the same figures um, in certain cases. So yes, I think that there was trade, both material, but also cultural. In terms of material trading, what sort of natural resources would the Scandinavians have had that would have been of interest to the Anglo-Saxons and vice versa? That's a good question. I think that there are a number of products that are moving around in the North Sea. It's usually been proposed that England at this stage is already doing a, a good trade in wool um, and, and fabrics made out of that wool. Other th- there's a re- been a recent case that tar might have been an important part of this, this sort of trading nexus. It's also a matter of things that are coming from further away through Scandinavia. So it's recently been proposed that one of the precipitate factors in the Viking raids, the Viking voyages, was that you have a, a sort of drip feed of valuable high-status goods like, for instance, silver coins that are coming into Scandinavia from the east, from what's now Russia, and ultimately from the Caliphate, um, but not in huge quantities. And these are stimulating long-distance trade. They're stimulating towns' desire for such goods, but there aren't that many of them. And so if you want to, to get ahead in Scandinavia at this time, you need to get hold of some of that movable wealth for yourself. And so what they do is get it where they know it's available. So monasteries, towns, other kinds of settlement across the North Sea in Britain. And so you end up with the, the Viking Age. That's the case that's been made recently. Now, I just want to talk about coinage for a moment. I know you have done some work on that in the past. Now, in terms of the coinage used in, in Anglo-Saxon England, what can you tell us about just the currency system? You know, would it have been a, a bartering economy? Would it have been, you know, monetary transactions? Would it have been by the weight and Going back to the Vikings, when the Anglo-Saxons were in trade with the Vikings, how would those transactions have looked? Well, I think that the Anglo-Saxons were used to thinking in terms of money, um, as were the the Vikings for that matter. But by money, we really just mean having a a sense of measuring one thing in terms of another. Um, You're thinking in terms of sort of transferable debt, you know, having something like silver or for that matter, cattle or slaves or anything that you use to rate value of, of other stuff. Um, in England, they think it primarily in terms of coins made out of gold and silver. Whether they're actually always using those gold or silver coins is another matter. And that's because these things are comparatively valuable. Um, a silver penny probably had the buying power of several tens of modern pounds, euros, dollars. So it's not something you could go out and just spend quite casually. And for much of the population, it's likely that they simply didn't use coins very much at all. Uh, most people probably would use them at some point for some things, but there was probably a fairly select group of people who'd be using them as standard. Um, moreover, 
they were of particular types for use within each individual kingdom. So just as nowadays you have to use pounds in the UK, dollars in the US, and so on, um, you had to use silver pennies of English type in Anglo-Saxon England. Now, the Vikings did things a little bit differently. They were very interested in silver too, not just silver. They had lots of other commodities that were used as money, but silver was a particular popular one. And they were interested in it much more as a unit of weight. Um, so they were quite happy just to cut things up, melt things down, um, use silver in whatever form, as long as it was good quality. And so when they came to England, they were able to extract uh, silver in terms of payment for their tributes, which came in the form of coin, some more pure than others. Because, of course, in England, when the king is telling you you have to accept a coin as a penny, it can be a bit debased. You know, the king's power is such that he can make you accept a penny as being worth a bit more than it actually is in terms of its, its intrinsic content. So you've got a first potential break with the Vikings there. They might not be best pleased if the English think they've just paid £10 in terms of tribute. And in actual fact, the Vikings have only got £5 worth of silver once they've melted it all down. The other break might have been if the Vikings simply wanted to trade in objects made out of silver. The Anglo-Saxons did this sometimes, but not as standard. And so if you wanted to travel through England in the, say, the year 900, when you had some territories under Viking rule, some people who'd be relatively fresh off the boat from Scandinavia, but also some Anglo-Saxons who were brought up with a much more monetary frame of reference, you'd probably have needed to carry a whole range of different currencies with you, a bit like you know, nowadays you might want to carry dollars, euros, travelers' checks, um, Krugerrands all over the world with you. So our putative 900 AD traveller would have had some silver pennies from different Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. He might have had some Arabic dirhams, which were the preferred type of coin you saw in Scandinavia, and those might have been cut up in turn. And then finally, he might have had some actual objects, ingots or other brooches or something like that made out of silver, which could be cut up or just used as whole objects. And so by covering all those bases and then occasionally having to go out and get a cow or something like that, if you're in a different kind of setting, you'd be able to cover all your bases. Now, I just want to talk about your new book, which is Citadel of the Saxons, The Rise of Early London. Now, your title, Citadel of the Saxons, was London very much the Citadel of the Saxons? And uh, in what ways? You know, I think that title has a lot of weight to it and is very telling about sort of how the city was viewed. That's right. Yes, the publishers and I went back and forth a bit about this title because we wanted something that sounded grand and exciting, but which was also also well sort of right and had some some historical weight behind it. And Citadel of the Saxons was what we chose because London was first re-established as a city, as a bishopric in Anglo-Saxon times, as a, a seat for the bishop of the East Saxons, um, and he was based at what's now St Paul's Cathedral within the Roman city of London. So in a sense, London was, in fact still is, very much the, the city, the citadel of the East Saxons. Um, so it's true on that front. But also, one of the points I wanted to make in this book, in an important sense, the making of London as a major city was a strongly military one. There was a martial element to its emergence as the key centre within England from the time of Alfred onwards, and especially in the years around 1000. It's it's shaped by armies, demand for paying armies, the king basing his army in London. Um, that's what really creates it as something like the city that we know today, as a key centre within England and later within Europe as well. 
I'll put a link in the description below, of course. But where can people pick up a copy of this book? Well, it's on it's on Amazon. Um, it's certainly on Amazon UK now, and it'll be Amazon on Amazon US shortly, I think. You can also get it from the publisher's website, IB Taurus. Awesome. And again, everyone, I'll put a link to that in the description below. Well, Rory Naismith, it has been a delight speaking with you today. I've certainly learned a lot about Anglo-Saxon England and the history of medieval London. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's all right. It was my pleasure. 